This is Brandon Givens. Topher M. Ford is on assignment. I'd like to introduce this two-part episode. In this first part, you'll learn about the little-known spat of UFO encounters and abduction stories that occurred in Brazil starting in the 1950s, namely the curious case of Antonio Bielas Boas and a reported minor attack on a Brazilian military base. We focus on understanding the facts and circumstances around the first UFO sightings, especially in Brazil and the United States. We are not professing to tell you the complete story of these activities. We are professing to tell you the complete story that we know. These records that we've uncovered don't tell the story. This is CIA files. They tell pieces of it. True stories of U.S. intelligence. There is no fixed physical reality, no single perception of the world, just numerous ways of interpreting worldviews as dictated by one's nervous system and the specific environment of our planetary existence. Deepak Chopra All things are subject to interpretation. Whichever interpretation prevails at a given time is a function of power and not truth. Frederick Nietzsche Reported sightings of what we now consider a UFO go back at least as far as 1946. But the concept of UFOs, along with the concept of aliens visiting Earth from some distant star, became cemented in our culture in 1947 with the infamous crash that occurred near Roswell, New Mexico. To set up Roswell, you have to understand the UFO zeitgeist. Pilots during World War II often reported balls of light that seemed to fly independently. These were called Foo Fighters. Though the Army took them seriously, it was still a mystery what they were. It left the impression that there was some sort of intelligence in the skies. Well, in June of 1947, a pilot and businessman named Kenneth Arnold claimed to see a number of flying discs while he was flying in Washington State. This is our first solid mention of a disc-shaped, unidentified flying object. The story was picked up nationally, and collaborating witnesses on the ground came out as well. In early July, about 30 miles north of Roswell, New Mexico, ranch foreman William Brazell happens upon debris. He described it as like tin foil, tough rubber, and sticks. He returns with his family and cleans up the debris. He comes across stories of flying discs and then approaches the sheriff to say he might have found one. The sheriff contacts the Air Force, who then investigate. They recover the material, and an Air Force public relations officer issues a press release saying that a flying disc had been recovered. Cables to the FBI clarified that the disc flew by means of a balloon. 
the Air Force eventually holds a press conference showing the debris and describing it as a weather balloon. Later information was released indicating it was for nuclear test monitoring, which the government was trying to keep secret. After the Roswell incident, UFO sightings became commonplace across the country. Local authorities and government agencies became overrun with reports of strange objects in the sky performing impossible feats before zooming off into the distance. But it would be more than a decade before another famous element of alien encounters would be introduced, this one being more nefarious than miraculous crafts in the sky. Alien abductions. And this strange phenomenon would begin with a young man named Antonio V.S. Boas. The son of farmers, Antonio lived in the small town of San Francisco de Salas, isolated deep in the state of Minas Gerais, Brazil. V.S. Boas, along with one of his brothers, first saw a strange object in the distant sky on October 5, 1957. Looking out of their bedroom window, they saw what appeared to be a circular light coming from some unseen source high above them. The light shone on the ground where it moved toward the brothers before disappearing. On the 14th of October, Vias Boas and another brother were working the field during the early hours of the morning when they saw another light, this time in the sky, hovering over his family property. He described it as a very bright light, so bright that it hurt the eyes, stationary at the northern end of the field. The light approached him until he could make out the source, a craft of some sort, which he said was shaped like a cartwheel. Hovering a few hundred feet above him, the craft shined a red light at V.S. Boas, which he said irritated his eyes. This irritation was noted by a doctor who examined V.S. Boas some days after his ordeal. Then, on October 16th, V.S. Boas became much more familiar with the strange craft, although not by choice. On the date in question, at around 1 in the morning, the 23-year-old farmer was sitting on his family's tractor, taking a break from his work. He often worked at night to avoid the blistering heat of the Brazilian sun. While sitting there, he saw a red light descend from the sky. Soon he realized it wasn't just a light, but a craft of some sort. This time, however, it didn't fly away. This time, the craft came straight for him. V.S. Boas said the craft landed a short distance in front of him. Scared, he tried to start his tractor and flee the scene. But the tractor wouldn't start, so he jumped down and began to run away. But he quickly found himself surrounded with a strange mist and fell to the ground, unable to run. Four figures around five feet tall and wearing jumpsuits approached V.S. Boas, picked him up by his arms and legs, and carried him back to the craft. Once inside, they stripped him naked and, using sponges, slathered a clear gel all over his body. After taking blood samples from his chin, they moved him into a small chamber where tubes coming from a wall emitted an unknown gas which he said made him feel nauseated. 
He later told his doctor, It was as though I was breathing a thick smoke that was suffocating me. It gave the effect of painted cloth burning. I did not feel well and the nausea increased so much that I ended up vomiting. After the smoke cleared and the nausea passed, Villas-Boas felt good, perhaps better than normal. UFO researcher Pablo Malso described what happened next. Alone in the chamber, Antonio perceived how some tubes jutting from the wall emitted a grayish gas that made him feel nauseous and on the verge of vomiting. Later on, the frightened farmer would receive another unexpected visit, this time from a nude, white-skinned female with slanted blue eyes, high cheekbones, thin lips, straight blonde hair, broad hips, and heavy thighs. And this was precisely the least likely part of the abduction experience. Antonio claimed to have entered a state of progressive, uncontrollable sexual excitement that he attributed to the liquid that had been rubbed onto his flesh. He made love twice to the unknown female. When they were done, the woman got up to leave. But before she left, she turned to look at him, rubbing her belly. Then she looked up and pointed toward the sky. V.S. Boas took this to mean the strange woman intended to have their baby on some distant world. Afterward, his captors gave him a sort of tour of the inside of their craft. He said he tried to take an object with him, a metal cube, but they wouldn't let him keep it. His captors finally took him back to his tractor and dropped him off. V.S. Boas would find that he'd been gone for over four hours. His sister, Odersia V.S. Boas, told Pablo Mauso that her brother was ill for some time after his experience. He arrived at five o'clock in the morning. He was very pale and trembling. I saw that he had two bruise marks on his chin. I gave him some very strong coffee to drink, but then he vomited a yellowish substance. He didn't want to eat the hen I'd cooked for him. Then he told me what had happened, that the tractor had stopped, that he'd been dragged into that thing, and that he slept with a very ugly woman. He slept poorly at night, had nightmares. According to his sister, V.S. Boas suffered from headaches, nausea, and weakness for days after the event. He couldn't eat, and he felt sleepy most of the time. Yellow, itchy lesions broke out on his skin. On the advice of his pharmacist, V.S. Boas wrote about his experience to journalist Yao Martins. Martins introduced V.S. Boas to a gastroenterologist and UFO researcher named Dr. Olavo T. Fontes. Prior to 1957, Dr. Fontes claimed he was dismissive of the notion of flying saucers until sightings began pouring in from all over the country. In the spring of 1957, Fontes joined APRO, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, and began filing reports on UFO sightings from Brazil. Four months after the abduction, V.S. Boas took a bus to Rio de Janeiro, where Dr. Fontes ran him through a number of physical and mental tests. Fontes declared him to be of sound mind and healthy body, aside from the recent symptoms he'd been experiencing. Fontes stated that he believed these symptoms were the result of radiation poisoning. Odersia said that a few days after her brother returned home from Rio de Janeiro, he was paid a visit by some men in military uniforms who insisted he come with them to California. According to Odersia, 
He took a lie detector test there before being given a tour of a warehouse that contained a craft similar to the one that had abducted him, as well as what they claimed were the remains of a crashed vehicle. She said that her brother returned home convinced that aliens from another world had abducted him. And she said that for some time after he returned home, he was terrified of the possibility that the aliens would come back for him. Dr. Fontes said that after he filed his report on the incident with ARPO, he was visited by officials claiming to be from U.S. Naval Intelligence who warned him to stop investigating the case. Strangely, after admonishing Fontes, they divulged to him that six UFOs had crashed around the world and had been recovered since the end of World War II with dead humanoid beings inside that were not from Earth. The mixed messages from the supposed intelligence officers may have been an attempt to impress upon Dr. Fontes the gravity of the situation along with the importance of keeping said information secret. However, another, possibly more likely explanation is that the officials issued the warning, coupled with the highly sensitive information about UFO wreckage and dead aliens, hoping that Fontes would actually spread the story. The fact that government officials warned him against speaking out would only strengthen the possibility that the story was valid. The same could be said about Vias Boas's compulsory trip to California. If so, the officials would have been following a playbook employed by the CIA, the U.S. Air Force, the Navy, and other government agencies in an effort to cover up development of secret technology, such as the U-2 spy plane, by spreading disinformation. So Richard Doughty was a special agent for the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. He was supposedly tasked with just finding out what scientists were uncovering. To be fair, that is a very legitimate activity for Air Force intelligence, especially if they aren't spying on civilians, but open about their intent. If extraterrestrials exist, it's fair enough to suppose they have the technology to sneak past our radar, you know, our regular detection hardware. So first, assuming extraterrestrials exist, it would be pure arrogance for the Air Force to assume it had all available information. Civilian scientists could have discovered something. Well, Dottie wasn't, doesn't just collect data on what civilian scientists have observed or believe they've observed. Dottie comes out and says that at the UFO conventions he attended, he fed disinformation, including forged documents to UFO researchers. His motives are unclear. The simplest solution is he's a troll. He thought investigating UFOs was a waste of time and thought he could give himself a stealth raise by having a little fun. A suggested solution is his behavior fits a pattern of misinformation. Instead of being tasked with just finding out what civilian scientists had observed, he was there to create confusion and discredit them. His own story about his knowledge of the existence of extraterrestrials changes as time goes on, 
Thus, he's not a very reliable source. Many investigators have put forward the theory that the United States was testing new technology in the area at this time. About two weeks before Villas Boas was taken, a strange attack occurred at Fort Itaipu, a Brazilian military installation in Sao Paulo, leaving behind two soldiers with severe injuries and a host of unanswered questions. At 2 a.m., two soldiers standing guard atop an observation tower noticed a bright orange light in the sky. The light sped toward the men, stopping once it was right over them. Then it noiselessly descended until it was about 50 meters above them. The soldiers later reported that the object was a disc about 100 meters wide. The soldiers heard a loud buzzing before they were hit with an intense wave of heat. The heat set both of their uniforms on fire and one of the men was knocked unconscious. The men's cries woke the garrison, at which point all of the fort's lights went out. After a few minutes, the heat subsided. The lights came back on, and the befuddled soldiers watched the orange light fly away. An investigation was ordered, but no other information was ever released. The two soldiers hit by the heat wave suffered first and second degree burns. I'm not sure exactly how someone has their clothes catch fire, but come out with only first and second degree burns. So I'm not sure about the accuracy of the details of this report. Nonetheless, a couple of soldiers claimed to have seen a light, been harmed by it, and the lights on the base were temporarily knocked out. That part would have had multiple witnesses. There are rational explanations for this, one being the soldiers could have been less than truthful or accurate about observing good old ball lightning phenomenon. Still, it's, it's a curious story. The first public mention of the V.S. Boas story was in a small Brazilian UFO newsletter called Sociedade Brasileira de Estudios Sobre Discos Valdores, published in 1962 by group president Dr. Walter K. Bueller. Thirty years later, Dr. Bueller claimed that shortly after publishing the story, he received an anonymous letter inviting V.S. Boas back to the States to examine more UFO wreckage. Antonio's story was largely dismissed by those in the UFO community at the time as too sensational to be true. It remained an obscure footnote in the growing UFO narrative until two other people came forward with their own abduction experience, Betty and Barney Hill. September 1961. In New Hampshire, the Hills were driving back from vacation in Montreal, and upstate New York. They noticed a light in the sky, thinking it was some sort of star or comet, but it was moving upwards. Betty asked Barney to pull over so they could get a better look and walk their dog. They eventually get back in their car and continue their drive, saying the light went 
in and out of their view. Eventually, it flies pretty close to them. Barney gets out of the car and looks at it through some binoculars. He claims to see humanoids in the window looking at him. He runs back to the car, and they flee, driving away. They hear some sounds and lose consciousness. They wake up in their car, not where they last remembered being, then they continue home. Once home, they notice their clothing is scuffed up and damaged, and the strap on the binoculars is broken, and their watches no longer function. Betty starts having nightmares in which they were both taken aboard a spaceship. They eventually seek psychiatric help and are hypnotized. In their sessions, they describe being brought onto the ship and examined. Barney believes a sperm sample was taken. He also had a very quick anal probe. Both Betty and Barney claimed that the um, aliens scraped skin samples onto cellophane. Betty says they took a hair sample. Their stories were more or less consistent. In 1965, the story breaks. This is important, especially from the skeptical point of view. This story becomes the template for pretty much every abduction story we hear about afterwards. Barney dies fairly young. Later in life, Betty takes up trying to capture pictures of UFOs. She speaks at UFO conferences, sharing her pictures. Eventually, people stop inviting her because she does things like presents pictures and a a random blur or a light reflection will be a UFO to her. Still, the story had two major effects. One, it provided a template for the abduction tale. Two, after their story became widely known, UF researchers took a renewed interest in the case of Antonio Villas Boas. No new information had come to light since he first shared his experience, but in 1977, another person would enter the picture with some outrageous, if not more mundane, additions to the story. So, were people drugged and made to think they'd been abducted? Was the alien abduction phenomenon part of a disinformation program? Like, did the CIA drug and rape a Brazilian farmer to make it seem like anyone who talked about seeing flying objects was crazy? I mean, it sounds insane. It would be cost-efficient. 
All it would take is two or three media reports of alien encounters and the story would become absorbed into the cultural zeitgeist. Just like, just like people hallucinate their certain religious figures. People would start hallucinate about being abducted. Then anyone with a story about a UFO gets laughed at. Now, this could have been an experiment to see if that could happen or would happen. Can, can new stories influence the delusions of the delusional? Well, if new stories can influence the delusions of the delusional, well, what influence do they have on the non-delusional? You know, what suggestions or ideas get into the subconscious of the entire population? There's a question of, of the power of the media and influence, and even what we choose to listen to um, and surround ourselves with. That's going to paint our perceptions in many different ways. And then we have to ask, what's the difference between mind control and people acting on suggestions that seep into their subconscious because of how issues and groups are portrayed in the media that they are consuming? Are people rejecting facts because of the way some people who believe or communicate those facts are portrayed? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting questions, but I digress. In the second part of this episode, we'll recount stories of CIA actions in Brazil at around the same time, as well as the U.S. government's history of conducting medical experiments on foreign nationals. This helps create the context for the MK Ultra connection. All right, don't miss it. Like, subscribe, follow. So, were people drugged and made to think they'd been abducted? Was the alien abduction phenomenon part of a disinformation program? Like, did the CIA drug and rape a Brazilian farmer to make it seem like anyone who talked about seeing flying objects was crazy? I mean, it sounds insane. It would be cost-efficient. All it would take is two or three media reports of alien encounters and the story would become absorbed into the cultural zeitgeist. Just like, just like people hallucinate their certain religious figures. People would start hallucinate about being abducted. Then anyone with a story about a UFO gets laughed at. Now, this could have been an experiment to see if that could happen or would happen. Can, can new stories influence the delusions of the delusional? Well, if new stories can influence the delusions of the delusional, well, what influence do they have on the non-delusional? You know, what suggestions or ideas get into the subconscious of the entire population? There's a question of, of the power of the media and influence, and even what we choose to listen to um, and surround ourselves with. That's going to paint our perceptions in many different ways. 
And then we have to ask, what's the difference between mind control and people acting on suggestions that seep into their subconscious because of how issues and groups are portrayed in the media that they are consuming? Are people rejecting facts because of the way some people who believe or communicate those facts are portrayed? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting questions, but I digress. In the second part of this episode, we'll recount stories of CIA actions in Brazil at around the same time, as well as the U.S. government's history of conducting medical experiments on foreign nationals. This helps create the context for the MK Ultra connection. All right, don't miss it. Like, subscribe, follow.